disturbing, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> what have we come to? If, if you're a guest, please know this is not our regular MO. We're thrilled that you're here, though, and whether you're a guest or a regular attender, we're thankful that you're part of this series called Buck Dynasty. Buck Dynasty. And I, I have to tell you, I'm a little confused, um, certainly of the culture up here, because it's not necessarily my normal culture, but I'm confused by the music. I mean, I've heard that song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, but I thought it was supposed to be like Caribbean or something like that. I, wasn't that like country? But they did a great job, didn't they? Very, very nice job. Appreciate that. I, I just think it's fascinating, though, that we have this song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, in the context of this series, Buck Dynasty, which is dealing with, you know, the very hard things God has to say about money and finances. Because when you try and put those two together, the idea of finances and that song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, it's, it's hard to see it, right? I mean, don't worry, be happy, right? Our, our lives are so tied to and so dependent upon this thing we call money in our culture that the idea of being able to say, oh, don't worry about money, don't worry about those things, just, you know, be happy, is ludicrous. It just doesn't even make sense to us, given the world in which we live in. And, and sadly, money is a cause for a ton of worry in most of our lives. There are a couple of people, I'm sure, that are just all set and on easy street, but most of us, on a daily, weekly, yearly basis, are wrestling through this thing and the idea of not being able to worry is something that we would love, but instead, we have lots of worry and very little happiness when it comes to the financial area. I mean, that's the lot of our world. It's a real problem, something we have to be honest about. But I, I think we view the problem through the wrong lens. I, I think we attribute the problem to the wrong thing. We think the problem is money. We think the problem is the lack of money or that we need more money, but that's really, really not the problem. And it's seen time and time again when people get more money, but they have the same problems. The, the problem isn't money. I think the Bible makes it very, very clear that the problem is that we've made money something it's not supposed to be. We've made money the goal. We've made money the point. And when you make money the goal and the point of life, it messes up everything in our life because when you have the wrong goal, you're going to make the wrong choices. When you have the wrong goal, you're going to pursue the wrong things. In fact, let's just put it on the bottom shelf. When you've got the wrong goal, even if you're successful, you're never going to get to the right place. You're always going to be going in the wrong way. And this is where most people are at. And, and we get it honestly, not only from our nature, this nature we have of want and comfort and satisfaction, but it comes from our culture that, that money is the point, but it's not. This weekend, as we continue in the series Buck Dynasty, here's the truth that I think we have to 
wrestle with. And this is a topic that we have to wrestle with. This is a topic that is very personal. It deals with our choices. It, it deals with our values. And yet God speaks a lot about it. But the truth this weekend is the fact that money is a resource, not the goal. Money is a resource, not the point. Jesus made this pretty clear. It's unmistakable. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's not what life consists of. And so if we make that the point, if we make that the goal, if we make that our definition of success, we are going to be sorely disappointed. We are going to be wanting to get to the right place, this place of of fullness in life, but we'll never get there because we're pursuing it in the wrong way. We've got the wrong goal. When, When we make money the goal, we fill our lives with all kinds of needless sorrow, regret, loss, and hurt. It's all that comes with it. We're, we're wanting the right things. It's just that we're pursuing the wrong things to find them. So we'll never get there. This explains so much about my struggles in life. This explains so much about the struggles that other people have. And, and until God's word starts opening up to us and we start seeing this truth that can set us free, we wrestle with it and we don't understand it. The Bible makes it clear that we're only going to continue to cause more hurt in our lives when we make money the goal. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. People who want to get rich. This, is, this doesn't mean people who want to be successful. This doesn't mean, it means people whose passion, whose view of success, whose goal in life is to get more money, which is really the essence of our culture, fall into a temptation and a trap, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For, for the love of money, this, there's nothing wrong with money, But there's something wrong with loving it, thinking it's the goal, it's the purpose. And that kind of love for money is a root of all kinds of evil. It leads to such messed up choices and so much pain and so much loss. So some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith. They no longer are looking to the real purpose and point of life, God himself. But they're they're looking to money and so they pierce themselves through with many griefs, with many hurts. And though this is a biblical truth and... That makes it true whether we accept it or not, whether we see it or not. I mean, this one isn't hard to see when you walk through life for any amount of time. This isn't hard to see when you you listen to the stories and experiences of other people. Anyone who's pursued life, even if they've been unbelievably successful, but they've pursued life as a means to get money, to get what money can buy, will ultimately tell the story that it's, it's just grief and sorrow they've gotten. In fact, there's a great example of this, I think, found in someone who was very, very famous in 20th century America. You've probably heard of him, Johnny Cash. Well, one of the very, very, in fact, the very last song he recorded, wasn't the last song released, but the very last song he recorded before he died, he he gave the biography of how he saw his life. It's one of the most emotional songs I've ever seen. Watch. I hurt myself today To see if I still feel I focus on the pain 
The only thing that's real The needle tears the hole The old familiar sting Try to kill it all away But I remember everything What have I become My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the end And you could have it all Upon my liar's chair Full of broken thoughts I cannot repair Beneath the stains of time The feelings disappear You are someone else I am still right here What have I become My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away Here's this guy who was profoundly successful at achieving what most people see as the goal. And he came to the end of his life and he was able, because of his gift and his art, to communicate in a very emotional way how he saw his life's investment. He chose the pictures for that video how the museum of his life, celebrating his life, was being torn down, no longer relevant. 
he saw how life was breaking down and what he had lived for and what it meant. And he said, you can have it all. It's just an empire of dirt. This is a man who made some choices that he regretted significantly. And he said, if I could start again, I would keep myself. I wouldn't make those choices. I would find a way. Why wouldn't we listen to a story like that and say, well, why wouldn't we find a way until we're at the end and we realize that living for the wrong goal always gets you to the wrong place? Why wouldn't we listen to that and try and make adjustments and find the way? And that's exactly what God's Word is doing. It's trying to help us to keep ourselves from making a life's investment that ends up being a waste God created us for value, not to just build up an empire of dirt. God's Word's trying to keep us from filling our lives with needless hurt. And in order to get there, we have to, we have to dig through the, the messed up thinking, dig through the messed up choices. We have to stop being defensive and closing ourselves off. And we have to open ourselves up, even to the pain of truth that goes against how we've lived, so that we could find a way, so that we don't end up throwing it all away because we were too proud to make a change. I mean, I have to tell you, talks like this are not my favorite talks. I'd rather talk about stuff that we can all go, woohoo, and I can be up here and making jokes, we can have fun, we can all leave, and you can buy me dinner or something. That's awesome. This isn't your favorite kind of talk because this really gets to where we're living but it also gets to where we're really hurting. And that's where we need the truth applied. And so the spirit of this talk is simply to tell the truth about what God says is the way to keep ourselves from wasting our lives. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, God says, command those who are rich in this present world. Now immediately many of us shut off because we don't think we're rich, but in biblical understanding, you need to know that Anyone who had anything beyond the rudimentary essentials of life, just enough to eat that day, just enough to to wear that day, just enough to sleep that day, anyone who had more than that was considered rich. People live day to day, hour to hour, hand to mouth, which means all of us here with the social nets of America are rich. We have more than what we need all of us, more than the rudimentary basics. And he says, command those like us in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in what they have just because they're not in the crisis of need. Don't hope in that because it's uncertain. Put your hope in God. He richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they're going to lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That makes it clear that many people are living but they're not ever taking hold of true life and it's because they're living for the wrong goals, making the wrong choices, pursuing the wrong things and ultimately, even though they win, getting to the wrong place and it becomes an empire of dirt and he says, no, live yourself, your whole life so that you'll have true life. And this passage says that true life involves that which we're searching for very often through money and other things. True life involves real hope and real enjoyment, real goodness, real generosity, real treasure in life, life to the full. 
But money can't buy this kind of stuff. People keep trying, and it keeps failing. But God can give it to us, provide it for us. We need to look to him, not money. He's the goal. Knowing him, walking with him, pleasing him. To truly live, we desperately need an abundance of God, but we don't need an abundance of money. But we've reversed that. We're putting up with no to little God as long as we can have an abundance of money. It's a mess, and it leads to building an empire of dirt. And so I think the application that God gives us in this very tough area of our lives is that if we want to truly live, we've got to set different goals. We've got to, we've got to figure this life out. We've got to start pursuing the right point. If we want to truly live, we need to get a handle on money. We need to put it in its proper place. We can't make it the thing. We need to make it a resource. Get a handle on money. And if we're honest, and I have to be honest, money has handled me at times more than I've handled money. Money has controlled me, my desire for it, or my thought that I don't have enough of it, or the, the absolute needs we have for it, and, and thinking that if we had a little bit more and solve the problems, we, we need to get a handle on this thing that so often is manhandling us. And if we're going to do that, I've learned, because I've had to pour into truth myself so that I could start making corrective choices in my life. If we're going to do it, there are some things that we have to get right that are right now wrong. Remember, if we pursue the wrong goal, we'll never get to the right place, but if we pursue the right things, we'll get to the right place. So what are the right things? Well, let's look at the principles. If we're going to get a handle on money, truly live, we need the right view. We need the right view, and I'm talking about the right view of money. It's not the point. And no matter how much we get, it's never really ours. Here's the right view. God owns it all. I mean, I could like put a period on that and ask you to leave and your week could be full. To which you say, well, why don't you do that? Because I'm just not gonna. <laughs> we need the right view. God owns it all. Look at First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11 and 12. Everything, and you might want to circle the word everything, everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord. Now, just, just because I know sometimes I, I, when I'm the only one speaking, it can, it can just kind of fly over and you heard it, but it didn't hurt it. But when you speak it, it's different. So when God says that he owns everything in heaven and earth, the word everything's important there. And so I'm going to ask you just to speak that word with me, okay? Ready? How much does God own? Everything. Right. Everything in your closet. Everything in your home, everything in your wallet, everything in your bank account, everything in this world, in heaven and earth, everything you want, everything you'll ever need, everything you'll ever have, everything you'll ever envy that someone else has, God owns it all. That means it was never ours. That means, at best, we're managers of it. He's entrusted us to manage it for him, for his purposes, for his honor and glory and pleasure. Look at 1 Corinthians 4.2. It's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Those who have been given the trust to manage someone else's belonging, to take care of it, have to be faithful to that or 
it, it won't go very far. i never forget where I learned this lesson in a big way. My father-in-law, who was um, a wonderful man. Did I say that well? Uh, he, he, when I married Roxanne, um, you know, he and I had some tension points with each other and everything, you know. We both had this belief that we were right. He now, that he's in heaven, knows that I was right, he was wrong. But that's a whole different issue. But w- w- when we first got married, he... He had this Cadillac, and it wasn't a new Cadillac. He wasn't a wealthy guy, but it was this old, old Cadillac that he took unbelievable care of. It was a pride and joy for him. It was a very important thing. And I'll never forget the first time um, we were visiting, and he handed me the keys to his Cadillac and says, you know, take Roxanne out and have a good night. That scared me to death. Now, if you're a guest here, you don't know this, but I'm not the best driver in the world. Well, I am the best driver in the world, but I'm not the best obeyer of the law when I'm driving in the world. And the, um, this is probably one of the only times I was driving his car that I drove below the speed limit. This is, this is probably the only time I've ever been stopped by a policeman for going too slow on the highway. I really wasn't, but I could have been. I mean, I, I was taking care of his car. Why? Because it had been entrusted to me and it was someone else's value, someone else's treasure. And this is what God's saying. If, if we're going to have the right view of the world, if we're going to experience life right, if we're going to handle money well, then we have to understand that he owns everything. We're managing it for him. That changes your view when you're buying things. That changes your view on what you don't and what you do do with money. If we're going to ultimately get a handle on money and truly live, we need the right priority. Once we have the right view, God owns it all, we need the right priority. And the right priority isn't being demonstrated by most today. Most people, if you look at their calendar, if you look at their checkbook, if you look at their online bank register, if you look at how they live and invest their time and resources, I mean, they're pursuing money or the stuff that money can buy. Whereas the right priority is to seek God. Seek him first above all else. Look at Matthew 6, 31 through 33. This is what Jesus says. Don't worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? It's not that it's not important. But he says, those who don't know God, the pagans, run after these things. They make them their pursuit, and they never, ever find satisfaction. But your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. So seek him first, his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these other things. He'll provide to you. Why? Because he owns them all. He's the great provider. So we need the right view. God owns it all, and thus we need the right priority. We need to seek the one who owns it all. We need to seek him. Not for what he can give us. Seek him because of who he is and in so doing, experience his provision. If we're going to get a handle on money, then we need the right value in this world. And I believe most of us have values discussions in our homes, around the dinner table. I'm sorry, around the TV, those kind of things. And most of us have value discussions, have beliefs and values. But the truth is, there's either the value of what's now or the value of what's eternal. And I believe when we make money the goal, the only thing that really matters is the now, the temporary, the things of this life, the short term. But when God is our pursuit, when we see that God owns it all, then eternity becomes the value. We need the right value, eternity. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Stop living for the short term, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's saying, have the right value. 
I believe we get messed up financially because we think we own it. We get messed up financially because we think pursuing money is the first priority of life. It's not. We get messed up financially because we value the temporary over the eternal. And, and I have to tell you, if I'm really honest, if I'm really honest, I'm plagued by these things. You know, we all, oh, yeah, it's the eternal. It's, the, it's so easy to say. It's so difficult to live. If we're going to ultimately get a handle on money, then once we, you know, have the right view and we have the right priority and we have the right value, then we need the right character. We need the right character. And you know what the character is, right? It's one word that we don't hear very much in this world anymore. Integrity. We need the right character. If we're really going to get a handle on money, we've got to get integrity. Look at Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1. A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. It's nice to finally read a verse that demonstrates the philosophy of our culture, right? Yeah. People sacrifice integrity all the time for money, even people who claim to be Christ followers. If we're going to ultimately get a handle on money, we need the right character. And you know what's interesting about this list of stuff? We can have some of them in place and others still be broken and we're all messed up. In fact, what I do in talks like this, I don't know if you're like me, but I think you are, uh, I'll, I'll sit there and when, when the person speaking says something that I'm good at, I'll light on that and I'll go, yeah, I'm awesome. And then I don't really listen to the stuff I'm bad at because I'm celebrating that I'm good at some of it. The only problem is it doesn't work that way. We need to have the right in all of these areas or money will own us as it does so many in this culture. Once we have these things kind of in alignment, then we really need the right plan. And I know everybody got up early on this rainy Sunday morning, walked through our parking lots here in the Plymouth campus. For those of you at Brighton Hall and Ann Arbor Selene, you don't have that long of a walk, but, but for those of you at Plymouth Camp, walked through all the rain, and I know you came just so you could hear me talk about planning because it's such a sexy subject. It's so exciting. There's so much adrenaline in it, right? And yet, without planning, we're never going to get anywhere. You can have the right view, and you can have the right priority, and you can have the right value, and you can have the right character, but if you don't have the right plan, you're still going to fail. And you know what the right plan involves? I've learned this the hard way. It, it involves being wise, and it involves being workable. And, and I've had plans that were imbalanced one way or the other. I've had plans that I thought were unbelievably wise because it's wisdom to spend less than you make, right? And so I've had these plans that were based upon let's not spend more than we make. Let's, let's save a lot of money. That's wisdom. And so I would make a budget that was totally unworkable. Uh, Roxanne, this month we have $50 for groceries. Uh, you know, this month, you know, we have 10 bucks for entertainment. And, and see, though it was stacked with wisdom, it wasn't workable, which means we failed. And this is where a lot of budgets are. But then there were times when I made very workable budgets. It's just that there was no wisdom in it. Because we were allowing ourselves to purchase anything we wanted. We weren't living by the principles of God's wisdom. And so we blew it. It needs both wisdom and it needs to be workable. Look at what God says in Proverbs 21 verse 5. The plans of the diligent lead to profit. As surely as the lack of plans of those with haste leads to poverty. If you're doing things in haste, impetuously, you have no plans. 
and it leads to poverty. And here's the point of that proverb. Financial health and freedom don't happen by accident. They take diligent planning and disciplined execution. And according to God's word, you need to know. I mean, you can scour it, and I encourage you to scour it for yourself. But according to God's word, the plan, the wise and workable plan, needs to cover at least three areas. It needs to cover the area of living because it takes finances to live. It needs to cover the area of saving because we need to make sure we're paying ourselves for the future. We're, we're eliminating the risks of the future by saving appropriately. And it also needs, and this is the one that's missing in most people's lives here in America these days, quite frankly, in most of our lives these days. And it's the area of giving. And I'm going to tell you, we are not creating a wise plan if we are leaving out or undervaluing any one of those areas. Living, saving, and giving. Look at how God says it. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Go to the ant, consider its ways, and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer, no ruler, no one telling it what to do, and yet look what it does. It still stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. I mean, it invests itself in... Living, and it invests itself in saving. That's what that passage deals with. Even the ant knows. You need to provide for living, and you need to provide for saving. That's what finances are about. But there's an area that we miss, that God seems to elevate above all the other areas, even though we diminish it below or take it out altogether, all the other areas. Look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Remember, God wrote this. I'm just reading it, all right? Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Now, let me explain some words. Tithe, many people don't know what that is. Sounds like a really religious and mystical word. Tithe simply means tenth. And in God's economy, he says, since I own it all and I'm giving you whatever you have. All you have ultimately comes from me. I'm giving you life and breath and opportunity, the talents you have, and all. I'm opening the doors for you. I'm providing these resources for you. Since I'm giving it all to you and I own it all, I'm never wanting you to forget who is more important. I'm never wanting you to forget that I'm the giver of your gifts. And so I'm going to ask you to give a tenth, one-tenth of all I give to you back to my storehouse. The storehouse back then in the Old Testament was like the temple or the synagogues, the places of worship today. It's the church. It's what he was talking about. And look what he says. Bring the whole tithe, tenth, into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. Challenge me on this, says the Lord Almighty. I mean, see if I'm not telling the truth. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Now, he's not saying, buy you the Rolls Royce you want or buy you your favorite American car. He's saying, I will provide for you. See if I don't fulfill my promises in your life. And you know what the problem is when we read this verse? Very often we're going, so if I give 10%, God's going to give me all kinds of money. You see what we've done? We've made money the point. And you know what a lot of people have done? Even pastors and spiritual teachers and churches, they've actually made all the consequences of faith about money. If you have enough faith, you'll be prosperous. If you have enough this, you'll have all you want and wealth. If you have this, you'll be rich. And that's how they live. And it's absolutely wrong because life's not about money. Life's about God and God provides. And he's saying, I will pour out blessing in your life that's beyond measure. You will be full of hope and joy. You will be filled with peace and contentment and meaning, significance, all the things that is truly life you'll have in life if you obey me in this area of giving. You won't have enough room for it. So let me get just downright honest. 
God owns it all. That's the reality. Everything we have, everything we will ever have, comes from him. And so if we're going to have a wise plan, isn't it wisdom to know that we need God on our side? I mean, isn't that wisdom? I need God on my side. He owns it all. Isn't it wisdom to know that God promises to be on our side when we're obedient to his will, to his word, even in the area of giving? I mean, isn't it wisdom? So I find that many of my plans in the past weren't based on wisdom because I was trying to do it on my own. I can't. I own nothing. He owns everything. Same is true with you. And so he said, test me in this. See if it's not true. And so it's wisdom to take God up on his challenge because he'll always fulfill his promises. But sadly, many are missing this aspect of wisdom like I did. They don't include giving in their plan. I'm going to be really honest. Most of you don't include giving of any kind of substance in your plan. It's just not the American way. At best, churches have about 5% of their committed people tithing, doing what God said. Oh, they have bunches of people raising their hands and shouting how much they love Jesus. They have a bunch of people shouting about how they're great followers. They have a bunch of people putting on a display of faith. But very few people who actually obey God when it comes to giving. They're missing wisdom in their plan. And you know what else they're missing? They're missing God in their financial lives. No wonder it's a mess. You see, you can't get to the right place if you have the wrong goals. You can't get to the right place if you're walking on the wrong path. The result of disobeying God, even when we have a bunch of things right in our life, is that we don't experience then God in our finances. We don't experience the life that's truly life. And so let me give you an example plan that would apply wisdom and be workable. And I need to tell you, I'm going to start at the very basic level. This is for those of us who are living at the very lowest levels financially. And the plan is 80-10-10. It's really easy. 80-10-10. Easier than a phone number. 80-10-10. 80% for living, because you have to cover the area of living. God wants us to feed our families and be fed ourselves. 10% for saving, because God wants us to be like the ant, looking forward and making sure we have, you know, emergency funds and the ability to look forward and live. And then 10% for God. 10% for obeying God, doing what God told us to do in Malachi 3.10. Okay, so I, I think you need to understand that that as you start moving beyond the basic levels of I'm living day to day and you start growing in your financial life if that happens for you this is not a good plan anymore because if you're making tons of money why would you spend 80% of it on living if you only need 20% on living that doesn't even make sense this is a start out plan it's not there this isn't the goal of life to keep spending everything you make 80% but it's a start out plan but many of us would have to adjust that down 10% 10% for saving is a great start-out plan, but boy, if you're making way more than you need to live, man, saving should go up, right? Wouldn't it be wise to have more saving go up so that you have more to invest in you know, future and other people, your kids, etc.? Of course it would. And then 10%. A lot of people think 10% is that high-range goal. If I'm giving 10%, I'm doing more for Jesus. In fact, if I give 10%, I'm Moses. I'm Abraham. But that's just not true. That's a start-out level. That's the minimum. That's the base standard. And as God pours out blessings in our life, what we're able to do is readjust the percentage of living down, readjust the percentage of saving up, and then readjust the percentage of giving up. Because, hey, look at how he's blessed us. 
And, and here's the deal when it comes to giving. I know we want to be in control. I, I certainly do. And I even want to be in control when it comes to my giving. I want to control where it goes, who I give it to, and that I get credit and all those different things. Are you a human being? Are you like this? It's like, I want to control this sucker. But God says, Malachi 3.10, you heard me read it. We're supposed to give the tithe to the storehouse. He took control out of our hands. He said, if I've called you into a spiritual gathering place, once again in the Old Testament was the temple, in the New Testament's church, if I've called you into a spiritual community, and he's called all of us into a spiritual community who are believers, it's the church, he says, that's where I want you giving the tithe. He also talks about offerings. When you start going beyond the tithe, beyond the 10%, boy, you can start distributing in generous ways all around. But he says, this tithe thing, you have no control. It's mine to control. You're supposed to give to the storehouse. And I'm just telling you, this is, this is news to most people. What? I'm not supposed to control it? I'm not supposed to do that? And we have all kinds of excuses. So let, let me just cover it. I believe it's very, very important that we just obey God on this area and, and if we've been called into a local community to give there. If you're a part of another church and you're just a guest at Northridge, give to the other church. It's not about what we want from you. If you're not a believer here, if you're not yet following Christ, don't give to the church. I mean, we don't want anything from you. We want you to find Jesus. So give to a charity because giving's an important part of your life too, but give to a charity. Don't give here. But if you're called into this community, you need to give. And, and here's what we need to realize. When we give to God, we're just doing it to obey, but we do want to make sure that the church is one that's honoring God and obeying God and following God's truth, doing God's mission, right? I have to tell you, there, I love the church, but there are a lot of churches that aren't doing God's mission. They're not reaching people and waking people up to Jesus, not being light and darkness. They're just kind of country club for, you know, whatever, and parks and recreation for the middle class. If they're not obeying the mission, why would you want to, first of all, go? Secondly, why would you want to give there? Because they're not following God. You're not really giving to them there. So you want it to be that kind of a church. And so you need to check out Northridge if you're a part of Northridge. What are we doing? And I'm going to tell you, this entire ministry is devoted to waking the world up to Jesus, showing his love, telling his truth, involving people. And we don't just do it here. We do it around the world. You know we're building hospitals in Zambia because of the just millions of dollars of investment that came through Northridge Church that we've done. We're supporting kids in Zambia and changing two communities. We're doing the same in the Nicaragua, Colombia. We just sent money to the Philippines because of the typhoon that hit there. We're very invested internationally, but we're also invested regionally here in Detroit and domestically around here, doing all kinds of things, feeding the hungry and working with prisoners and working with eels. We're every weekend trying to reach people in the name of Jesus. This is a mission. I am so thrilled to have a church like Northridge to give my tithe to because I know where it's going. It's going where I could never do it myself. It's just an amazing thing. There's a second area I care about. If I'm going to give to a church because I'm obeying God, then I want to make sure the church has integrity. I want to make sure the pastor's not lining his pocket. I want to make sure he doesn't have a couple of Learjets on the side. Trust me. Uh, no Learjets for this boy. It's, I, I want to make sure he's, he's like, you know, not getting rich off of ministry. And I want to make sure the church isn't you know, wasting money and things aren't being embezzled. And so this is very important. I have, since the very beginning of my ministry, believed that the only reason you should ever listen to me is because I have been proven trustworthy with integrity. The minute that's compromised, thank you, I have. The minute that's compromised, you no longer have a reason to listen to me. Why would you listen to me tell God's truth if I don't tell the truth? It doesn't even make sense. A life of integrity is essential. 
And so here, we've established the whole thing under that. There, in the whole budgeting process, there's integrity all through it, but our elders have financial oversight where they know what we're budgeting and why, that it, it meets all the criteria that should be involved in that, and then they review each dollar being expensed against that budget, that there's integrity, but that's not enough. We also then get an outside audit by a totally separate and objective uh, auditing firm about every single year about how we're using our money and how we're doing it and about the integrity involved in that. And then we've also joined the ECFA, which is an outside organization that holds Christian organizations accountable to financial integrity. If they don't meet the standards of integrity, they can't be a part of the group because integrity is valuable to us. And so you want to know, it's about trusting God and doing what God has said to do with the tithe, but make sure these things are right about the church. And we hold those we partner with around the world to the same level of integrity, because we don't want you to give and it to be wasted around the world. This is a big deal. But bottom line, ultimately, when it comes to the tithe, it's for us to obey. It's not for us to control and do what we want. It's not an option. When we don't obey, the same thing happens in our life that always happens when we reject God's way for our ways. He gives us what we want. When we say, no, God, I'll do it my way, he says, okay. And then we have to fend for ourselves. I have to remind you something. He owns it all. He's the provider. He's the only resource we have. He's the only one willing to be our venture capitalist. And so if we say, no, thanks, we have just decided to walk in the wilderness with no provision. And that's what the majority of Christians are doing. Because they've said, no, you know, God, I'm not really into that whole giving a tenth thing to the local church. I, you know, I'll give a little bit, but I'm going to give it to who I want. I gave a quarter to that homeless guy once. Is that enough? I mean, seriously. And we're just making up our own rules and still expecting God to open his floodgates into our lives. And we're wondering why we're shriveling up and empty and unfulfilled, and it's because we're not obeying him. We have, we have to come to the place where we realize we need him. Yet most people aren't here. Understand this, robbing God ultimately results in robbing ourselves. You, you think you're robbing God, right? You're robbing yourself. If you're a believer and not tithing, I would encourage you to think through whether or not you really want to leave God out of your finances. Is that how you want to live without him? Remember, he owns it all. He can protect you from financial disasters. He can make a little bit go a long way and a lot go a very little way. In fact, I learned this lesson the hard way. I found out that God can make my 90% go a lot further than my 100%. And a lot of you go, I, don't, I can't afford to give to God. That is a brilliant expression of the world's philosophy that will never lead to your freedom. You can't afford not to give to the only one who provides for you, is the truth of God's word. Giving feels like loss to me and to you. Doesn't it, when I, listen, I used to give with my hand clenched so tight you had to pull it and rip the money before it would come out of it. I mean, it feels like loss, but here's the truth. Not giving is the real loss. It's the loss of the only one who can genuinely provide for us. Th think about this. 10% to God is only difficult if we don't really believe that he owns it all. 10% to God is only difficult if we really don't believe that he provides it all. And so our giving is an expression of our faith. Here's a question, two, a question I've had to learn to ask myself. My question is, how much do I really trust God? 
And you know what the answer is? As much as I give. Do you know how much you trust God? As much as you give. So let me ask you, how much do you really trust God? Most people don't trust him much. And because my answer has fallen short so often in life, I've had to get to the place where I go, okay, what's my real problem? And it comes down to the last thing we have to get right. Not only do we need the right view and the right priority, the right value, the right character, the right wise plan, but we also need the right heart. You know what heart we need? The grace-formed, grace-filled heart. The grace-formed, grace-filled heart. Look at how the Bible says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 and 9. But just as you excel in everything, you know, you excel in all these spiritual areas in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and love, don't leave this one out. See that you also excel in the grace of giving. Why? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Everything of value in my life today stems from the moment that I open my life to Jesus' forgiveness and to Jesus' transformation. When I admitted that I was guilty and I couldn't do it, I was robbing myself by pushing God out of my life, and I, I put my faith in what Jesus did when he died on the cross, and he rose again, and he transformed my heart, changed me with grace. It created true value in my life. And then the demonstration is that once grace formed and grace filled in heart, then we follow him in generosity. And I have found that the people who aren't generous are the people who talk about grace but aren't living grace. You know why the world's getting darker and darker and darker as more people talk about light and light and light? It's because it's all talk and it's no walk. If we really want the life that's truly life, we have to step into grace and let it form our heart and fill our heart and then be expressed outward. This is a challenge to me as a believer. It should be a challenge to you as a believer, but I know there are some here who aren't yet believers and you're going, well, how can I experience a grace-formed, grace-filled heart. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's God's gift to you. It's not your works so that no one can boast. And then verse 10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know what most of us do? We start trying to do good works to get God on our side. That's not where it starts. It starts with letting God give you grace, and then he transforms you into a person who does good works. It doesn't start with giving, it starts with receiving. But when you've really received grace, then you want to give it. So my question is, have you ever received his grace really? I'm not talking, have you sang it, have you said it, have you pretended it? Have you really received his grace, and has it transformed your heart? If not, this is your moment. Just before I finish this talk, I'm going to ask if you'd bow with me in a word of prayer, and as we bow... I hope that you who are believers are challenged and talking to God about how this impacts your life. But for those of you who've never experienced his grace, pray with me. Take these words, but make them the expression of your heart to God. Just say, God, I need your grace. I need your grace to forgive me, to change me, to make me new. I have to admit, I've sinned against you. I've lived without you but I'm putting my faith in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, and by faith I'm claiming the gift of God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed with me, I just really want to encourage you, let us know, would you?
Uh, just let us celebrate with you. We've put together a letter that can help you take some next steps in your walk with God. And if you're in one of our live services, in the program we handed you, we have this connection card. And all you have to do is fill it out and check that circle at the bottom. And then there are boxes at every exit in all three of our campuses. And, and we'll send you that letter. If you're watching online, just hit the What Next button. We'll do the same for you. But here's what we need to do. We need to summarize the whole idea that we've looked at. You know, money's not the point. God is the point. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 36. What good is it for man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What good is it for a man, as Johnny Cash said, to have it all but really to end up with nothing but an empire of dirt? I mean, what good is that? What, what good is it to live your whole life to get to the place where men like that say, I wasted it all? And so as you leave this weekend, remember, money is only a resource, not the goal. And when you use it as a resource to do what God has called us to do, life becomes truly life. And isn't that what we're looking for? So glad that you were here. See you next time.